Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 5th, 2014, and this is episode 1313 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a good friend on the line and a well-known member of our expert council, Ben Falk, of Whole Systems Design from the Mad River Valley of Vermont. And Ben is, you know, well known for permaculture. And we're sort of kind of talking about that, but an aspect of it that we generally don't discuss deeply, uh, even in the permaculture field, which is just, you know, homes and, and building a home that you will, will do well for you in cold climates. Ben is in USDA zone four. That is, uh, quite cold. Um, I did this interview yesterday, but I looked up his weather this morning. And it was about 15 below zero this morning where he's at. And that presents some unique challenges. And even in the summer when I was there about a year and a half, two years ago now, um, in, in August, the nights were quite cold. Uh, not freezing cold or anything like that, but cold enough that you wanted a good warm weather bag or a good blanket when you were sleeping in a tent. Um, you know, going down probably into the high 40s in August. Early August, not late August either. Anyway, before I bring Ben on, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one, today, KnifeKits.com. If you want to learn how to make the best knives in the industry, go to KnifeKits.com. You can start out with a kit and work your way to the point of being a master bladesmith. Or you can just stick with kits. It's all up to you. KnifeKits.com has an amazing reputation for service and value. Check them out today, KnifeKits.com. Remember, they do provide a discount to members of the support program. Uh, next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. Backwoods Home Magazine was the magazine I started reading back in 1993 when I got out of the Army. I'm still a subscriber today, and I always will be. Uh, they helped me reconnect with my country boy roots during a time that I was you know, evolving my professional career in the big city area of Dallas, Texas. Um, and I still am kind of surprised after my long history as a reader that I get to work with people like John Silvera, Dave Duffy, Jackie Clay, and Masada Yub, some of their great writers over there. Check them out today, backwoodshome.com. And uh, they also provide a discount for members of our support brigade. On that note, um, High Mowing Seeds provides free shipping on all orders. And uh, they're awesome. I mean, they have an incredible assortment of seeds. And I just put out a post today. Uh, they, they're the kind of company that always wants to do a little bit more for the audience. And... Um, They're doing a seed giveaway for TSP listeners. They're giving away uh, two packs, two, two collections of seeds that if you bought them uh, would cost $57 to one lucky winner. Uh, if you just get on over to the website today, you'll see a link, High Mowing Seed Giveaway for TSP listeners. And you fill out a simple form on their website, and you're registered to uh, to win that uh, that prize from them. So take a shot at it. And uh, if you need to order from them, remember, you get free shipping on all orders. And with something like seeds, uh, many times that's a better discount than you know 10 or 15% off. So it really is a great discount. Uh, again, High Mowing Organic Seeds. Uh, that is a good segue into the Member Support Brigade. If you're new to the show and aren't familiar with this, the Member Support Brigade is the way that you can help the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast. It comes out to about 20 cents an episode. When you get done listening to the show, which of course is free and always will be free, always has been free, 
1,313 episodes for free as of today. Um, but if you think it's worth something and you'd like to support it, you can join the MSB or Members Support Brigade. And again, at 18.3 cents an episode when you do the math, or 50 bucks a year. But then you'll get discounts to over 40 vendors, many of our sponsors, and many other companies on stuff you're probably buying anyway. And if you're buying stuff like seeds or tactical gear or long-term storage food or any of this stuff to add to your self-sufficiency and self-reliance, uh, it's probably the case that you'll get 100% of your money back over a year. On top of that, if you... Um, If you are military law enforcement Peace Corps or active duty or uh, active duty or prior service or a first responder like an EMT, a paramedic or a firefighter, you get an even bigger discount because I discount the MSB to you. Just send me an email with service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences in the body of the email. Send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com and I will email you back a coupon code to thank you for your service. You do need to do this before though, not after you join. Um, With that, I'm ready to get into uh, kind of the main part of today's show. But before I bring Ben on, uh, let me tell you about the year in history that is the number of the episode. The year 1313. 1313 is interesting because, well, climate change. Yes, climate change happens or begins, or is being felt in the premonitions of it in 1313. From Alex Shrugged at TSPWiki.com, just a warning, the last few years have been getting colder. More rain has caused certain crops, like cereal crops, to produce less at harvest time. And a volcano is rumbling out there. It's going to be bad. Very, very bad. Uh, Alex shrugs to take. I have contacted someone at Texas A&M Atmospheric Science Department for an opinion on weather history from this time period. I'm seeing speculation from historians, not weather scientists. I'd like an expert opinion. Let's see if they can come up with one. Uh, Alex, don't hold your breath. Um, all I'll say is all of the freaking out over climate change, and here you have 1313, we're on the cusp of moving toward the Little Ice Age, which will last all the way up into the colonial period of the United States. We're not there yet. We're going to have a, a cooling period, and then we're going to have a, a really decent period in the middle, and then the Little Ice Age is going to come. That's what's coming. The climate changes. We should design our lives for it. It does not mean that we should tax ourselves because we exist and exhale. Little factoid for those of you who think I'm wrong when I say, hey, the CO2 is not the problem. Instead of giving you the fact, I'll run a contest. You send me an email. Carbon by humans in the subject line. Carbon by humans in the subject line. And what I want to know in the body of the email is the percent of CO2 released into the atmosphere every year caused by humans. So if we take all the CO2 that is released from all activity on planet Earth... From mice breathing to volcanoes, every year annually, 100% of the CO2 released. And we also include human-produced carbon dioxide. What percentage is caused by human beings on planet Earth right now? What is that number? Whoever gets, I'll take every right answer, and I'll do a random drawing, and I'll give three people a free year of MSB. But it's more of a learning exercise. 
I think you'll be surprised. What percentage, again, not how much CO2 is in the atmosphere. It's a little bit more than one-third of one percent of the atmosphere, by the way. But of all the CO2 produced every year annually, what percentage of the total is contributed by humans and human activity? Anyway, with that, let's get, especially with the permaculture episode, Ben will probably have a heart attack when he hears this. Anyway, when, uh, but I'll tell you what, it is great to have Ben on the air. Uh, Ben's an amazing guy. I think you'll really enjoy uh, our interview today. And uh, a little side note there, climate change is a real phenomenon. It, there is there is definitely climate change, as we see throughout history, and we do need to address it in our daily lives. And I think Ben does a good job of doing that without shoving politics down anybody's throat. It's what I try to do, except I try to wake some people up who are obsessed and myopic with one view of things to say, hey, maybe there's more than one reason to be a good steward of the planet. I think you'll hear many reasons between Ben and I today. And with that, hey, Ben, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. Good to be back here. Hey, man, um, it's been a long time since you've been on the air other than the, you know, the work you do on our expert council. Thank you for that, by the way. So yeah. some people may only know you from that. Can you give people, you know, like the two-minute synopsis of who is who is Ben Falk and what is Whole Systems Design? Sure. Well, uh, basically, I just uh, run a homestead here in um, the Mad River Valley in Vermont, um, a small farm. But the goal is um, really just to uh, provide for a lot of my own basic needs, food, fuel, uh, increasingly uh, med- medicine as well, preventative medicine, staying health essentially as a need. And been here about getting in our 11th year. It's 10 acres. Although most of what we're doing here is um, really you can do on two to three to four acres. You know, most of the land is just um, in passive use, some grazing and some um, some uh, fuel wood production. And we also, um, well, being here has forced us to figure out how to use um, a pretty marginal, beat-up old hill farm. You know, a marginal landscape. We don't have any ag soil. The water tables. Uh, at the surface for much of the year over a good part of the property. It's really cliffy, steep in sections. It's not what anyone would call uh, farmland. And so by trying to meet our basic needs here, we've had to do a lot of experimenting and, and had to learn a lot. And um, over the years, we have started sharing what we're learning with our clients um, through our business called Whole Systems Design, where I have a, have a background in architecture, construction, and, and landscape architecture and land planning. So we feed the information that we're learning into that business, and we've written a book called The Resilient Farm and Homestead last year to share the information that we're learning. We teach some permaculture design courses and a bunch of other short courses, and um, now we're working on actually developing with our family a larger piece of land about 40 minutes south of here, which is 175 acres, where we're scaling up the lessons we've learned here and the, the successful species and techniques that we've found here we're taking to a more commercial scale on that property. So that's, that's that's the long short of it. That's awesome. Let me just give you a plug for your book here. Um, I think that if you are in Florida or Texas or something like that and you don't really get permaculture, at least a little bit yet, it may not be the book for you. If you are anywhere in the world, though, and you understand the basics of permaculture, I think it is one of the best books you could put into your hot little hands. If you're in a cold, temperate climate like you are, I don't care if you just figured out what a garden was yesterday, it's probably the best book you could get your hands on to developing uh, your own homestead. The reason I say that a person that's in Florida or Georgia or Texas would need to have some fundamental permaculture understanding before maybe that's the right 
resource is only that it will require them to think for themselves and say, well, if that doesn't grow here, what fits in the system that way? Um, your principles that you lay out, uh, and it's, it's kind of takes some gutsy move to come out with a whole new set of principles, uh, cause you got to get it right. Man, we're just outstanding and some of the best thinking principles I've ever seen in permaculture in my life. And I don't say that just because you're a friend. I say that because I was that impressed with your book. Thanks, Jack. That's, that's really, uh, really great to hear. I appreciate it. It seems like it's been very well received. They just printed, the publisher just printed their third printing of 5,000 copies. And yeah, we, uh, we took some, we've been, in some ways, we've been working on the book for a long time. So, uh, it's great to see that it's, um, it's come out pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing people should understand when they look at a book like yours with all the amazing photography, because I've, you know, I've been to your site and walking it is just, it's breathtaking. And people need to set realistic timelines for the development of their own homesteads and understand that how bad, I think what really people can get out of that book is if they'll, if they'll, they'll take their eyes off the pictures for a little bit and read the whole storyline, how bad the property was when you got it and how much work went into it. And now it's a lot easier, but it took a lot of early on work to get to where you are, to where now you've got things where nature's taking over and doing more of the work. In the beginning, you guys had to do a lot of the work yourselves. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of heavy lifting early on to kind of get that flywheel in motion, the biological flywheel, so then you can start um, you know, living off of that energy as it, as it starts to spin around. It takes... It takes a bunch of years, but you know, the funny thing is, like, a bunch of years go by pretty quickly too when you look back. So, especially when you love what you're doing and you see something beautiful being created. Absolutely, totally. You know, if you if you enjoy it, it's something you're going to do anyways, even without the um, necessarily the, the results having to happen. But then the results start to come in, and the results start to seem like a benefit. I talk about this in the book a bit, like as we start to eat, eat you know, eat fruits off of uh, trees. We're like, wow, that's I was enjoying just having this tree around, having the shade, having the beauty, and then, oh, cool, we got some fruit off of it, too. It's uh, almost like a bonus. You know, you forgot, oh, yeah, that's why I planted it. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I've got you here to talk about today, though, cold climate and cold weather home building and design. I think that's something that gets, like, a lot of people lose sight of that piece of permaculture. It's not just about plants. It's about a lifestyle and designing a lifestyle and designing communities, for that matter, but as we get into that, can you, before we even start talking about how to do that, give people an understanding of exactly what cold climate means to you? Yesterday morning, I woke up in North Texas to 14-degree temperatures, and because everything is different down here, we had all kinds of issues all over the city and dealing, people dealing with things freezing up. That 14 degrees for you would have been like, yeah, okay, that's spring. Um, what, what do you guys mean by a cold climate? Because it's not just finding plants that'll survive there. You as a person have to live there and and enjoy your life as well. Yeah, definitely. I think you know when I say cold climate, I mean it's a pretty broad term, but I, I would I would use it to describe anything um, that's pretty much USDA hardiness zone six, seven, or colder. Um, you know, I, I mean a continental. A northern, or if you're in the southern hemisphere, there's not a whole lot of land except for Antarctica that's, that's actually in in this climate. But um, and for our purposes, a northern uh, latitude um, location that's that's continental, you know, where you don't have major, um, you're not on the west side, you're not on the windward side of um, of a continent, so you're not 
in the Pacific Northwest, for instance, which is, you know, really mild, even though it doesn't also get very hot. But you're on the eastern, you know, northeastern United States, especially in New England, and especially interior, you know, interior New England, interior Midwest, certainly. I mean, they've gotten their share of cold, especially this winter. Um, so, yeah, and anywhere in, in continental Canada, for sure. Uh, places where the cold is, you know, the limiting factor to production, uh, and oftentimes cloudiness as well. And that's certainly where we are in the mountains of Vermont. You know, it's not just, not just the cold. I mean, we have to essentially, the design challenges produce in three to four months, two, three, four, five months, what you need for 12 months. And that's, that's the, so the design implication the overriding design strategy is one of abundance and then storage of the abundance. Yeah, and I think people don't realize, like, cold climate in certain areas like yours has cold challenges even in the the good months. So, for instance, I was at your place yeah. about two years ago in August, and the days were gorgeous. I mean, they were just like, you, you, could, you, you couldn't order it from a catalog and get more beautiful days. <laughs> but the nights were chilly. In freaking August. Like, here in August, I'm running the air conditioner at night. Up there, I think because I traveled pretty light to be on an airplane, I think I borrowed a pretty good uh, uh, blanket from you just to uh, to be a little warmer, right? So you guys have to think about your, your, your heat issues even in the summer with, you know, going overnight with thermal mass and things like that. Absolutely. I mean, even I remember when I was in college in Vermont, People right before the high tunnels, you know, field coop houses got really common. People were trying to grow tomatoes outdoors in the summer commercially, and you know, it's funny to think about about that now because now no one at the commercial scale in Vermont, I think it's pretty much safe to say, is growing commercial tomatoes outside. Since coop houses have gotten more affordable and popular, you know, so that's that gives you a sense of how how cool it is in the summer. I mean, in the mountains, especially in New England. You're um, you're not going to get much of a tomato crop outside in the summer. I mean, you can at the home scale if you if you have a nice hot microclimate, but yeah, it's not cool. It cools off every night, and that's certainly yeah. a challenge from a ripening perspective. That takes us a little bit of like you know you're you're being pretty generous and you put zone seven into cold climate because that's me. Yeah. Um. Right. Six though, I, I, even I like where I grew up, where, where I grew up in PA was zone six. And you could pretty much throw a tomato in the garden and come back later and there'd be a plant there. Uh, so even going zone six to zone four, like you are, that's a big challenge. And it leads us to, well, how do we live comfortably? And you're big on making sure that you have passive solar built into your homes. How important is that really? Uh, to, you know, cause you can put a wood stove in, but you know, how much wood are you going to use? Right. Yeah, and that, I think, is, is more, that question about passive solar is a great one, and it's something that I know I hadn't thought about, well, I hadn't understood clearly enough when I just studied this stuff in college and actually designed a bunch of passive solar homes and, and you know, hadn't had the opportunity to see how they function in Vermont. That's really a, a solar, um, not surprisingly, a solar equation more than a temperature equation. So you're going to get a passive solar home is going to get you way further for using less fuel, whether it's propane or wood or whatever, in zone three in the high plateaus of, you know, Colorado or Wyoming or Montana, or the coldest parts of, let's say, the Rocky Mountains, or up into Canada, than it would even in 
the two zones warmer in New England or the Great Lakes where it's really cloudy compared to having that the high, dry, cold, and clear climate out west. So we have uh, everything that we design here and where we live is all, of course, oriented to passive solar, but that just doesn't carry too much of the load in November, December, January, and then somewhere starting in February, a couple few weeks ago, the sun pretty reliably starts to come back out. It's still not out anything like it is out in the Rocky Mountains, the high plain states. I mean, it's still really cloudy climate here, um, really rivaled only by probably the Great Lakes and the Pacific Northwest um, in this area. But um, we do we do start to get some heat this time of year. But it's, I think that's where it's key to have an active form of heat. And in our, in our case, in this part of the world, you can't beat wood, you know, having stored sunshine in the form of cut-up trees, you know, stacked up dry, ready to go to supplement supplement your heat. And you build a lot of features into a house. Like, I think everybody gets kind of hung up on the passive solar thing. Like, well, if I have that, then I'm good. And like you're saying, then maybe not. I mean, I don't care if it's a solar panel. I don't care if it's solar hot water. I don't care if it's a thermal mass in a passive structure. If the sun ain't shining, it's not very efficient. So you right. have to start thinking about other features, and you know you can build passive solar, you can throw a wood stove in, but you have to think about things like, oh, I don't know, venting and uh, what have you to stay cool, uh, how how you trap heat to stay warm. What are some of the features that you've tried to you know incorporate into your own structure and advising others? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I mean a lot of the um, we need redundancy, like you're saying, because plastic solar is great. Harvest it when you can, but it's not going to carry you through in a cold, cloudy climate. Um, even if it, even if you are in a climate where it does carry you through, thinking about really some really basic patterns in a good, let's say, good home design, um, and not forgetting them when you design and build is key. Um, one of those would be have vent, have significant venting opportunities, high and low in the building. And when I say high and low really at the top, all the way at the top of the building, be able to get hot air out of that building because then you can do it. You can get hot air out passively without needing a fan or some, you know, energy input, something mechanical that's going to eventually break. Um, and then also being able to bring cold air and cool air in really low in the building. Ideally, that would be on the north side. So ideally, you're venting up high, especially on the south side, bringing cool air in low on the north side. And that's that can go. That's a you know that's a convection loop. That's a natural free. That's the, the free air conditioning system you can have in a home. Um, that might you might need to go a little further than that if you're in a really hot climate to keep you comfortable, like a fan or something else. But um, in most cool temperate climates, that's enough to keep a building cool building right off at the end of the day um, and keep it very comfortable. And that's easy to forget because. There's not a lot of homes being built and not a lot of homes around that you can see that have vents, true like cupolas or vents right at the top. And I don't mean a window up high is good, but make sure that window is really at the ridge, you know, all the way at the top of the ceiling in the top floor and make sure you can get plenty of air out of it. You know, not we're not talking four-inch holes or something here. We're talking like good-sized windows to really be able to vent. And, you know, that can get you far, I and mean, we did that. We followed that basic principle in our greenhouse, which I'm actually standing in right now. Um, and we, this performed way better than we thought it would. Everyone said you're going to need a huge fan to keep your greenhouse from cooking in the summer. 
because even in a cold climate, overheating a greenhouse is as much of a design challenge as keeping it warm enough when it's really cold in the winter. Absolutely. You can you could cook everything. It can be actually much, much worse than having it get too cold in the winter. Um, and we have a large vent up high at the top of the building, and the building is sunk down low, and it's a pretty tall greenhouse. And so this summer I was amazed. This is our first full summer with the greenhouse. It never got more than about 95, 100 degrees in here, which is a great temperature for summer summer plants in the greenhouse. Never had to, haven't had to install a fan, do anything like that to keep it cool. That's awesome, and I think that is something that people don't realize is that like the challenges, even in a cool climate, are both keeping warm and keeping cool because you still have the hot periods. And something like a greenhouse is designed basically as a solar oven light, right? It's like a light version right. of a giant solar oven. Um, if you have a, a, a good solar day and the temperature outside is 85 degrees, that that facility, if not, if not done right, could be 140 degrees or higher inside. It's right. like a car. It's like, a, you, leave, you know, you don't leave a dog in a car because you can kill the dog uh, or at least make the dog suffer. And it, you, you can do the same thing with a greenhouse. Um, we've had days here where we're down in the 20s and... Um, you know, if you don't remember to open your vents on the greenhouse, it it can get very, very hot in there, very, very fast too. Especially on the days where, like, okay, you've got everything kind of vented, vent, vent closed down because it's all cloudy and it's barely getting any gain. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get caught up doing something else, and all of a sudden the sun comes out. You go, oh, look, the sun's out. Uh yeah. And I think that's why it's a good idea to put in uh, maybe vents that use like a, a thermometer and no one to open themselves. Absolutely. We use just one of those little, um, the simplest thing we could find, and they're pretty reliable as those wax. They're wax-filled cylinders, and as they heat up, they expand, and the wax pushes a little piston out, and that pushes open the vent. And, you know, so far it's worked pretty well. It's only been in about a year and a half, but um, it, there's nothing electric. There's no microchip in it, and they're supposed to hold up pretty well. And it's worked great. You know, it'll be pretty open all summer and then um, during the day, and then you keep the door open on the other side. We actually kind of um, circumvent it. Um, when we know it's going to be a hot stretch of weather, we'll just literally prop the vent open so it actually gets open much more than it would with just the wax cylinder and keep it open, you know, keep it open for weeks sometimes when it's really sure. hot summer. We don't have to close the greenhouse down. Sure, absolutely. So another challenge in cold climates is water. Um it was pretty impressive the fact that, you know, we were one day here in the, like we were in the low eighties on a Saturday and Sunday night, this front came in, this winter storm Titan came in and we went from 80 degrees the day before to 14 degrees the next day's overnight low. And I have 50 gallon stock tanks that in that, that shift to climate froze like, not on the top, like froze like an ice cube, all like a giant wow. gallon ice cube, right? Just in one day. So, yeah. so that starts to make me think, well, what the hell is it like living in these climates where like 14s you're high? Um, so, you know, I, I had on my thing to talk to you about moving water and, and, and using gravity feed. And, and I want to still talk about that. But also, I imagine you have to really put a lot of thought into things like, well, will that water be accessible? Will it be available? And things like the depth of a pond pulling off the bottom or something like that for some water usages or whatever. I mean, how do yeah. you manage keeping water available in your climate when you're in these depths of winter and, you know, water turns into ice? 
Yeah, it's it. I mean, it sucks, Jack. I'll tell you straight up. It's it's not. Um, I'd rather dealing with the staying warm challenge is almost more enjoyable and and less difficult if you have a well insulated home and a nice you know kick butt wood stove um, and a good supply of wood than than keeping the water from freezing that you don't want to freeze. It's certainly it's obviously you know doable, but it's it's. It takes constant vigilance. The design, when you when you set the systems up, they have to be really almost overdone. I mean, this year, the frost right now, it's hard to know. I really would love to actually have a big enough excavator on hand to dig down and see how deeply is the ground frozen right now. But I think it's, it's really deep. I was talking to some old-timers a few days ago, just kind of quizzing them to see how deep they think it might go, because they, they probably have a pretty good sense. And they were, th- they were thinking like four, four feet, maybe five feet deep because we had a lot of cold without um, a good amount of snow cover um, prior to a few weeks ago this winter. And so, you know, we do things like dig, you know, it's standard to put water lines basically at least four feet below the ground um, in this part of the world. You know, I think code for most buildings is have footers go four feet or deeper. That gives you a sense of if you don't want a building to heave. Frost line is thought to be about four feet around here. Um, but if you drive on it, a surface or plow it or both, you can get frost. They've had problems in paved roadways here in Vermont with frost going and freezing town water supplies that go under a uh, state highway that are seven feet underground. So you can get frost, you know, going that deep. What we've found is actually surprisingly successful is some judicious use of, of foam board. And it's probably the if I could only use foam board, pink foam or blue foam for anything, it would be to bury uh, to cover water lines that are in the ground. For some places, like my water supply for my studio comes actually off the house, goes, goes from the well to the house and then back. And actually, on both of those runs, we hit bedrock at 18 inches. So people in those situations will either have to blast to get their water line below frost, which is incredibly expensive. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. People do that a lot. They actually blast to put water line in the ground around here. It's craziness. Um, but I think if you can get just at least a little bit in the soil, people are successful with burying it in, you know, two to four inches generously, like at least two, two feet to four feet on either side of the line horizontally, putting it under like full sheets of foam board. And I think so far, knock on wood, we've been successful. I had to redo my water line here because it froze. The people built the house must have had a rock, you know, fall in when they backfilled it, but it was leaking for a bunch of years. So we put in a new water line, hit this bedrock, covered it in full sheets of two-inch foam board, and it didn't freeze this winter, and this winter was a pretty good test winter as far as the, the frost going really deep. So, I'd say so. I just pulled up your weather forecast, and uh, it says you're about 18 right now. Three degrees is your low. Tomorrow your high is going to be 12, and your your, your low tomorrow night is going to be 10 below zero. Yeah, it was 13 and a half below zero this morning here, and we're March 4th. I've never seen it be, I've never, it's deep winter cold. I mean, 13 below zero, 14 in, in near here, a mile down the road, I was heard it was 20 below. That's like, you know, really cold for, for mid-January. So we're getting that in March now, which is, you know, so, so if you think about it, if whatever's been standard in the past, as you and I've talked about before, we probably want to times that by, 0.25 or 0.5 and put in the more extreme direction from a resiliency planning perspective, both 
hotter and colder. So if, let's say, standard frost depth is four feet, well, we should probably, if you're in that area, you should probably design and build as though frost depth might be five feet because if it becomes five feet or six feet in 10 or 20 years, you still have all your, you got all your infrastructure is still underground. You're not going to go want to change that just because the frost depth changed over the last, you know, 10, 20 years, you know, but you put your foundation in it so it's four feet deep and now frost is five. So I think if in doubt we're trying to overbuild our systems and let's say go four feet deep on a footing and still put foam in, even if, you know, theoretically you don't need that foam or go two feet deep or three feet and put a bunch of foam in. That's often also a cost savings. I think in, in Scandinavia, they're big on that, and they do a lot of what they call shallow frost-protected slabs, and they'll literally scrape the topsoil off, of, off the ground, cover the ground in two inches of foam, and then pour a slab on that. And if it's spread out enough, foam actually is very strong. It doesn't puncture through because the, the weight's all spread out, and you can have an instant frost-proof area without having to dig footings, and that can be a really great use of uh, of modern technology there. So um, that's key, you know, footings and water lines is the big thing. But if water is moving, this is the other design, considered one of the other design considerations is understanding that if there's constant flow to a water system, you're, you're in luck. I have mm-hmm. a spring that flows all winter, and I scratched it in the ground an inch deep and just put it under so that no one would, you know, damage it walking around. And I figured if it freezes, it's not a big deal. I don't need that water in the winter. It was kind of an extra little spring that was here. You can see it melt the snow off, and it's never frozen, even though it's only an inch deep because it's constantly flowing. And it's actually just a trickle. It's not even a big flow. So basically, if it's intermittent flow, it has to be really deep and or under a lot of foam or both. But if it's constantly flowing, you, you, you can actually do a lot with it. So that's where a lot of the gravity-fed systems that are actually really old around here came about where people would have water constantly flowing into their house, fill up a cistern in the basement and run back out and it'd just be constantly moving through, you know, someone's basement. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I've been thinking as I've, I've been having my challenges here and I put, I put in these poly tanks is if I was building the house and if I lived in a place where I could actually have a basement, I'd probably have one of these poly tanks uh, as a reserve in my basement. Um, yeah. you know, then you're looking at like 1500 gallons of water sitting there that's never going to freeze. And it, it, even a small draw pump can put that up into a pressure tank in an upper floor, uh, to be, you know, used for, for, for flow. And that can be done with a very small energy footprint. Um, it's not going to happen here, but it, it, when, what I think is interesting is when you get into permaculture, you know, you move to a place and there's only so much you can do when other things have already been done and there's only so much you can justify, but then the mind still starts working. Well, what if I could do this from the beginning? What would I do? And I think it leads us to a lot of solutions. Absolutely. So that's, that's an exact question to, to ask yourself when you get, like every year, every, every month, ask yourself that question because it's easy to be blinded by the existing conditions and not realize, okay, pretend it's just a blank slate what's ideal and how do I actually retrofit towards that ideal and that's that's cool too because it moves you in that direction right so it's like well I can't do what I just said but I bet you I can figure out something so for instance one of the things we ended up doing we put in two uh, 70 gallon pressure tanks in the garage 
And so that's 140 gallons of water in reserve. And the way these tanks work is it's just, it's really a passive system other than the well itself filling them up. There's a bladder, an air bladder in these tanks. And that air bladder gets compressed as the water comes in. And then it provides pressure to the water of the house. So that's if my well was just shut off. I have 140 gallons of water that'll come out my faucets before I now need to worry about. Yeah, and it, instead of having to kick on the generator, for instance. Right. So, like in most houses, when the power goes out, it probably people people have seen this where you, you know you can run the sink or flush a toilet a few times, and then that bladder is exhausted. That's a great. That's a great way. It's like compressed. You know, like running a car in compressed air. It's a really nice passive. And the nice thing is they're not that expensive, and if you don't want to do it yourself, any plumber could install that for you. If you you call up any local plumbing company and say, I want to put some pressure tanks in, no problem. So then what we did is we got smaller pressure tanks, and we located three of them within the house. So now we have another 50 gallons of water in the house. So when we had the pipes freeze up the other day, and actually froze up between the garage and the house, this one weak spot that we – now we know where it is now – we didn't know it was there. There's one place that when I was like, that must be it, and I put a heater on it. I just took a space heater and pointed it at it, and I waited like 10 minutes, and the water came back on. So the the, the whole house was still running all morning long, even though the, the well wasn't able to push any water to the house because these other three tanks were acting as intermediary pressure tanks. So with those, there's another, you know, 100 gallons of water. So you had 240 gallons of water that exists and with our big house and, and low pressure well, this also gets our pressures up to where they're usable. And right. so that's what we did based on the fact, oh, I'd have this huge tank and I would do it. Well, I can't do that, but I can do this. You know what I mean? Right. You know, that's what we ended up, a nice retrofit that we did here, which is pretty similar, I should share with the audience because it's a great solution. And, and, you know, if you can't, if, if the ideal is a spring 100 feet or more up on a hill above your house, which is definitely great. If you can find that site, it's probably already taken in most places. But if you can find a site like that or you can afford one, great. But for the rest of us, that that doesn't exist because they're all all already taken. The best farms have those sites. The next best thing is still having a gravity feed setup, uh, which for us here, because we were trying to develop one of those springs up high, but it's pretty marginal supply, we ended up putting a um, just a 50-gallon tractor supply tank, very cheap tank, up on the third floor. And this is the house as water tower principle I talk about in my book. It's just in, in a warmer climate, you'd have a, literally a water tower. But in this climate, that'll be a frozen block of ice for the better part of half a year. So make your house the water tower, the freeze-proof gravity feed support system. So we just put a tank as high as we could in our home and keep that full. And if we know a storm is coming and haven't refreshed the water, I'll just refresh it. It takes about 10 minutes with our well pump or less to just make it fresh water so we could, you know, drink out of it and it's not stale. Or even if it's not fresh, it's still great for showering, doing dishes, everything else. We have a 50-gallon, you know, drawdown to go off of a cistern that's already, that doesn't even need to be pumped to. Then, of course, we could always pump to it, hand pump or foot pump or even haul buckets if we had to from the pond. Um but, um, you know, if you had a bigger structure, you could put a 1,000-gallon tank up on the third floor. And it's actually not really a new idea, but then you have that that as a reserve. It's just a really, really good strategy. And that's something we actually retrofitted a few years after we had built the building. We realized that would be a, a really key backup. I think it's because we're spoiled. 
in this country with, with reliability. We, even if we're on a well, well, right. the grid is usually very reliable for the energy to run the well. Uh, and when it comes right. to city water or county water, co-op water, it's usually pretty reliable. What you're describing, these, these tanks located like up in, in, in uh, attics and what have you, uh, I was talking to a guy from Brazil, and he said almost everybody there has them in, you know, unless you're like right in the city. And I'm like, right. why? He's like, because the water fails all the time. So the people have gotten to the point where they don't even know the water failed because that tank just stays full. And, and then, therefore, when the water's not working, you're using the tank. And when the water starts working again, the tank fills up. And right. by putting a couple right. hundred gallons of water by, most of these people get by through these frequent outages. And I think yeah. we are very spoiled in the Western world. And I don't mean that in like a negative, we suck way. I just mean we are. Because we, I don't know if you've ever been where your water's out and you know it's out. But you still, when you walk by the sink, oh, I need to rinse my hands off. And you, you just don't even think about turning that faucet. And then you're like, oh, yeah. And you're right. so. You do, you do it like five times before you finally remember the water's still out. <laughs> yeah, because you, you just become expected that, hey, that's, that's the way that thing works, right? That right. water comes out. I remember this, uh, this, this speaker one time was talking about how people come to expect things and how we can, we can associate the thing with the, with the, the product. And he told the story of like, it's like a joke. I'm sure it never happened. Like this old prospector uh, comes into town and, you know, electricity's new and what have you. And he goes into this house and the guy has an air conditioner and he's never seen one before. And he just turns the thermostat and then the temperature changes in the house. So he's got his little shack up in the woods. So on the way out, he goes to the general store. He buys a thermostat, takes it and puts it up on the wall of his shack and then, you know, turns it to the temperature he wants and nothing happens because he, he associated the, 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 this device provided this product. And I think that's what happens. We start saying, well, the faucet provides water. No, the faucet's where the right. water comes out. The infrastructure right. provides water. The supermarket makes the food. <laughs> Correct. Same, same thing. Yeah. The supermarket makes the food. The, 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 the light switch turns on the light. No, the light switch is the final juncture where you decide where the light comes on. The electricity powers the light. And how do you get that? And that's we have become spoiled about that, and that's why whenever we have any kind of long-term failure, people go nuts. And it's yeah. almost inconceivable to believe that 200 years ago, nobody had any of this stuff. I mean, even here in a rural place where you think people are generally more, you know, connected with their with the sources of their basic needs, not that, you know, what just looks like the product, as you're saying, most homes, even in rural Vermont, I talk about this a bit, are are going to be a frozen, flooding situation where you can't even fl flush the toilet within days <laughs> or less in the winter, you know, if the grid's down. Just if electricity, and electricity isn't a basic need, isn't available, all of a sudden there's a cascade in, in effects of basic needs not being met, like heat and water primarily. So it's incredible because if you don't have a wood stove and you don't have a way of getting water, if you don't have a passive, durable, non-electric supply of water and heat and hopefully some food, you're SOL, you know, you're, you're moving into your, you know, you're driving what people do is get in their car and drive to their, you know, their families a state away where the disaster isn't affecting the area and then hope their house isn't a flooded, you know, yeah. nightmare when they get back to it, when the pipes, you know, pipes what, frozen. What has amazed me is people not having the resource and not even realizing they do. So the one time we were, um, dealing with uh, a problem where actually you, you, we had no water to a residential neighborhood in Arlington. And so the sewers worked, but no water would come out of the faucet. Basically, it was a big main that broke, and there was no pressure. 
and we were out of water for like three days. And the neighbors were saying how, you know, they, they can't even flush their toilets because they have no water. And they were going over to like her sister's to, to just to use the bathroom. And we're like, well, just like us, you have a pool. And they're like, well, yeah. Like, we'll use the pool water to flush your toilet. And they, they were like, well, how would you do that? I'm like, well, you could fill the back tank to flush it, right? But literally, if you just pour it in the bowl, once the, 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 the amount builds up, it'll flush. And they had no idea that a bucket of pool water would flush their toilets. Right. And they were right. sitting there with 24,000 gallons of pool water. <laughs> and, and because and see this is this is why the permaculture it requires thinking. So the the fact that nothing required these people to think for so long left them sitting there with their own solution and you know taking a drive to take a poop, which is just okay. ridiculous, absolutely positively okay. ridiculous. And and like so we started asking our other neighbors who didn't have a pool like do you guys have, you, you want to use a bucket and get some water from our pool so you can flush it because it never even occurred to us that anybody wouldn't understand how to do that. Right, right. Well, that's where the, as you mentioned, the, the being spoiled in of itself isn't a bad thing, except that it starts to impede really how your brain works and how you, you know, your lack of being able to think about how a system is actually, you know, functioning in terms of cause and effect. It's like a balance of having the, this this high quality of life, which is great, and then still understanding the underlying fundamentals of how it's provided and what to do about it if it fails. Right. And that's where you have a lot of leverage. If you can work, if you can understand both, then you have a lot of leverage because the resources we do have right now are great in that they free up a lot of, you know, time opportunities. They give us a lot of uh, ability to find new information and set up. They give us a, a great window to set up systems that will work when those systems, you know, are in failure mode. It's just uh, it's a great it's a great opportunity we have right now if we, if we think through the systems a little bit. Now, one of the resources you have that you use a lot of is wood. Um, I have a wood stove here that we've, you know, we used once just to make sure it worked. Um, I have some wood put by in case it was long term that we would need it. Um, but the the fact of the matter is that the Dadgon thing puts out so much heat, unless it's really cold, I don't even want it running. Um, right. In my climate, I'm just not that cold that often. With this week being one of the few exceptions this year. Um, yeah. But for you, this is this is a a key piece of your technology. Is is wood heating and and doing a lot of things with that heat other than just heating space. So I imagine you've had to examine many of the mistakes there. So what do you think some of the biggest mistakes people make are when it comes to using wood as a research resource for heat? Yeah, God, there's so many, and it is something I've just really geeked out about for for years. Even when I was renting renting in college and living with wood stoves and trying to just get more and more heat out of them and get them to do more things. Um, well, I think a big one is that people often have a stove that's too large for the space. That's a, that's a really common one, is people oversize a wood stove. And if you think about that, that's really just like oversizing a vehicle. If you, if you need to go zero to 60 in five or six seconds, whatever it is, great, a huge engine is, is helpful, but for every other 99.9% .9 of the time you're driving that vehicle, you're just burning more fuel than you need to, to go the 75 miles an hour or 60 or 50 that everyone else is going down the road also. Um, so a big wood stove will get a house up to temperature really quickly, and that's great. And, it, it, you know, that for that particular use, it's nice, and it can have a really good application like, um, like in my shop, I have a small wood stove. That's a great opportunity for a big wood stove because of the pattern of use. You go in there, 
you want to make some stuff, you want it to get up to temp quickly. But for a home where you're heating it more continually, 24-7, you want to be able to have that be like the six-gear, you know, three-cylinder diesel that you can get in Italy on the road, where you're, you're up, to, up to speed and you're just coasting and really work on a, on a coasting situation more than an acceleration situation. So um, that's a big one. I see a lot of people with, with stoves that are too big. And then you end up basically having the house, if you think about it, every degree that the house is above 65, 68, 70 degrees, depending on your tolerance, is a waste of, of wood. It's a waste of heat. You want a stove to, and stoves run best when they're being not totally blown out, cranked, as, as people would call it, but not certainly not smoldering. They, they run well, you know, with having a moderate amount of airflow, a small amount to a moderate amount. A good amount. even burn, right? Yeah, a nice burn. To get a good burn, to get good combustion, you know, there's that, and what people around here call it when wood stove's really humming. It's just when any system's like this, a car, a bike, and you know it when you, you know it when the system's at that spot. It's like if you're on a long-distance run or whatever else. And there's that sweet spot for a stove where it's really giving you the most heat, the best ratio between heat output and wood input as possible, least amount of wood input for the most amount of BTUs out. And so to get that and not overheat a building, it's all about the ratio between the wood stove BTU output, which is usually between like 30,000 BTUs to 60,000 for a big wood stove or even more, to a ratio between that and the size of the house as well as the, the well, how many, how many BTUs the house is losing. So what people really should do is run a little bit of a, of a BTU load calculation, just like you would for electricity for kilowatts, to understand how much heat your building is losing, to understand then how what size of a wood wood burner like a furnace or a wood stove to get. Often I see people get stoves that are way too big. Um, we heat 1,500 square feet on about a 30,000, 35,000 BTU an hour output wood cook stove. And it keeps basically the whole building between 75 and 60, depending on where you are in the building, almost regardless of temperature outside. If it gets below zero, that starts to change a little. If it gets above 30 degrees, it starts to change a little, get on the warm side. But um, we do that on two cords of wood, and that's with all of our hot water being heated as well by that system. So... What our system is, is a, it's actually a wood stove, but it's also a cook stove where we bake in and it's also retrofitted to a hot water tank, which you can do with any wood stove you can retrofit to a hot water tank. It just might require a little bit of welding and plumbing. Um, I can talk about that more in a minute, but I'd say just circle or back around to your question, what are some of the main mistakes? The other big one besides stove sizing, this is probably even more common, is burning wood that's not dry. Everyone seems to think, or most folks, at least around here and probably most of the country, if you get your wood in the fall and you stack it up and get it ready for the winter, it'll be ready and it'll be dry. Well, wood doesn't dry that quickly. You know, hardwood, the rule among woodworkers is that hardwood takes um, dries only an inch in uh, per year and softwood will dry two inches in terms of depth of wood per year. Now, it's a little faster than that for sure when you split up wood. But the point is, it's really slow. I mean, as people who are fine at culture know, 
nothing holds water better than wood. I mean, it holds it better than the best soil. A log a piece of wood is that's what it's designed to do, right? So to actually have the tree be alive is to hold on to water with itself. So rule of thumb for us is have by the beginning of spring, let's say by end of April, at the latest, have all your firewood for the following winter stacked up and undercover in a pretty sunny spot with good airflow. Now, if you're not in a truly cold, humid, cloudy climate like I am, you can dry wood a bit faster than that. But if you're in the upper Midwest, continental, cloudy, cold, New England, a lot of eastern half of Canada, you know, you need the whole summer plus. Yeah, it is it's climate climate specific. For so, for instance, exactly. here, if I set up a nice woodshed with good airflow through it that got baked by the summer sun, um, oh, yeah, from not. June through August, I might as well be kiln drying drying it, right? Oh, you know, absolutely. but but that's not the case when you're in the climates where you need the wood the most are going to not be those climates. Absolutely, where you need it the most, it takes the longest to dry it. Totally, because even where it's just as cold, let's say, think about. Zone three in northern um, Montana, sunny, super cold, but sunny. The wood's going to dry faster, also, and you need it less because you get the passive solar. So yeah, if you're in a real sunny climate and/or warmer or more arid, essentially, you could dry cordwood depending on how small it's split up. That's another big factor. You know, literally in a month or two or three, but certainly not the case around here. I mean, I've been amazed when I've camped in the desert before that you can you can find or even in the high desert mountains, you can find wood on the ground and actually burn it. But here you find wood on the ground, it's rotten, it's not something you can burn. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, you get out into like the West Texas area, any piece of wood laying around is going to burn beautifully for you. Uh, old right. pieces right. of mesquite that are laying around, and that stuff burns hot and long, it's beautiful. But you don't have yeah. that big a call for it, right? It's Like I said, it's almost like the the the, the place of the greatest need has the greatest uh, requirement for production. Yeah, it's an interesting kind of uh, yeah, uh, equation there that, that makes it difficult. So, but the great thing about drying wood is it's the same amount of wood, the same amount of work to stack a cord of wood, whether you do it in, you know, March or April or do it in a, as a rush job in, you know, late August or September. So it's just putting time on your side. Um, so that's another mistake. I mean, I'd say it's most of the time is made around here. You know, when it's not dry, People will say, oh, but it leaves better coals or it burn takes longer to burn up. Well, yeah, it takes longer to burn up, but you're boiling all the water that's in it. You have to boil that water off before you can get the heat out of it. And if you think back to 7th or 8th grade science, you know, it's when you boil in water, it takes a lot of energy. You have that phase change to go through. So it's just a huge, it's just robbing you of BTUs, every bit of water. It's a heat sink. Oh. I mean that's just the best yeah, way to think about it. It's 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 thermodynamics. Like you're not getting more efficiency, you're using more energy to produce less results. Right. And it may seem like the wood's lasting longer or you're getting more coals, but that's that's not that's not what you're going for. You're going for most BTUs from the least amount of wood. I mean that's the design goal with heating on wood. And if you if you want the wood to last longer, then you might want to address the cause, not the symptoms. And the cause there would be a stove that's not airtight enough. So that's another piece of the equation is making sure you have a stove that's ideally totally airtight. Um, in some ways, that's kind of theoretical, but at least highly airtight. And you can go around and diagnose the stove you have with a lighter. It's easier if you have a huge long match, you know, one of those big 
you know, one foot long matches or one of those big Bic lighters that are really long. And you can go around while the stove is running and find out where it's sucking air in. Ideally, it should just be taking air in at the air inlet device on the stove. And you can get some um, white ceramic insulation that's like totally fireproof. It can take like 3,000 degrees or something. And I have a sheet of it I bought years ago. And I just, every fall when I test my stove, I go through and find little cracks. And I just seal up the cracks with this white insulation. Or you can also use stove cement for smaller cracks. You know, like actual Rutland makes a, a brand, a brand makes, a brand called Rutland makes stove cement, a few other brands out there. And you can just patch up your stove, have one of those tubes around. But making sure it's really airtight will get you much further as well and get you longer burn times as well. And then you've also, to me, done something really smart so you have this stove and it's burning and the reality is that when we burn wood efficiently, we generally produce more heat than we really need. So if we can make that do other work for us at the same time. That's smart. So can you talk about like the, the multifunctional way that you're using wood heat? Right. I think the biggest one there, I mean, we do a lot with our wood stove. We bake in it. We obviously keep the space. We even get a little firelight off of it. We dry a lot. And the drying function of a wood stove in a cold, humid climate is not to be underestimated. I mean, buildings will rot out if they're not heated. Basically, any building I would put out there would basically rot if it's not being heated for the most part. Um, so the drying function is key. We also dry clothes and herbs and, you know, mushrooms and apples and all sorts of stuff. But the other big one, bigger than all that, I think is even almost more important, is the water heating. So we got a 40-gallon hot water tank that my neighbor, who, funny thing happened to be an engineer, was throwing out the hot water system, the hot water tank, excuse me, and we did some engineering with the hot water tank where we just hooked it up to the back of our wood stove, put a little water jacket in the wood stove, a little stainless steel one-gallon container, plumbed it in with one-inch copper line, and mounted the water tank about three to four feet above the stove right behind it. So when the stove's running, the back of the firebox is that water jacket, and it just heats the water up in there. The water gets lighter. It rises, cycles into the tank. As it cools, drops back down and creates a natural thermosiphon, convection loop, no pump needed at all. And we basically have what seems like a perfect balance between a 40-gallon tank which you can find everywhere because people are always talking about this was an electric hot water heater that probably the electric element broker, he was sick of paying $2,000 a year just to heat hot water, but the tank still holds water. So heat, we heat that up with the stove, and it's a perfect balance between the amount of heat the stove puts out and the amount of heat capacity that that tank can store. So basically if we're cranking the stove, Basically, the colder it is outside, the more hot water we have, which is a nice way of flipping that equation back around to, to the whole lack, you know, abundance and lack, of, depending on how the context is. So as it gets below five zero degrees outside, we're really cranking the stove. We have like 140 to 180 degree water available in the tank, or even more. One time, we actually twice had boiled the tank. We can talk about safety features in a second. Um, and if it's kind of uh, swing seasons will have like 
100 to 130 degree water, which, you know, the top of the tank will be 110, 130, which is enough to have a hot shower. So it works great all winter. And unless we're cranking the stove like crazy, our daily use of two people showering and doing dishes taps off enough heat from it to keep it all balanced out. If we really crank the stove and for some reason don't take a shower for a while, we need to run a little hot water in the sink to keep the tank from boiling. That is if we really were cranking it for days. And so that's a good problem to have. To have is too much heat. But in order for a safety perspective, you want pressure relief valves in the system, which are just, you know, they're on all furnaces. You buy, we put two of them in, two is one. So those act, have activated every time we made steam accidentally in the system. And you leave like a five-gallon bucket below it, and it'll just blow out hot water if you ever do boil the system by accident. Um, but it's amazing to see that the 40 gallons, we wanted a 30-gallon tank, but those aren't really around. We got a 40-gallon for free, and it turns out to be really perfectly paired in this climate for the amount of time, the amount we use the stove and the size of the stove to kind of what they call the balance of systems, which is just like in when you're doing solar hot water or when you're doing a battery you know, solar or wind turbine system. The whole balance of components is really key. Awesome, man. So um, another thing I, I always like to ask people that have been through this process and really put a lot of thought and effort uh, into setting up a system, and and I don't know many people, honestly, have put more thought and, 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 and done more in developing a system to address a cold climate than you, especially from a permaculture perspective, but what I always like to say is along those lines, you always make mistakes along the way to finding the right way. So what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned or mistakes you've made uh, as you've developed your system for your life? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think, I mean, there's been, in some ways there's been a lot, and in some ways, you know, there there hasn't been. I mean, I think there's a lot of little things um, that, you know, I could I point out to people when we're here on the permaculture courses and we're walking around. Um, but, you know, as far as big things, I mean, well, I'll just list off a few. I mean, we've insulated our, our new construction pretty well, but I think I would insulate it even better. It's a little, little hard to justify given how well it does heat, but you, you're not going to re-insulate, so you might as well insulate as, as best as you can possibly afford to. We did 10 inches of cellulose in the roof and, eight inches in the wall, and I think that's probably minimum for this type of climate in terms of our value. That's about, you know, 20-something, 30 to, in the walls to, like, in the 40s in the roof or, or less. I think you want to be more like 40 walls and 60 roof. You're, again, you're only going to do it hopefully one time, at least for a long time. Might as well do it full on. Um, let's see. We, we, uh, we used windows. In general, I would use larger windows use less larger windows. That's a great way of saving energy, heat energy, and getting more light in a home in a cold climate is, you got to remember for every window you put in, let's say you put in a window that has two, two feet by four feet of glass. Well, you're giving up that in terms of heat loss because glass, even the best glass, is very basically very poor insulation, like R3, 2, 3, 4 at best. But you're giving up, you get two by four of light, you're giving up not just the two by four of of insulation of heat value loss when it's not super sun strong sun coming through the window. You're giving up all the framing around it as well because every window needs framing around it, 
and you can't put a lot of insulation right around a window or door. So if you think about it, you're going to get more light for less heat loss by using less bigger windows because the ratio between light getting in versus heat loss out is better than doing lots of small windows. And I think in some parts of one of the new buildings here, we we could have done less less um, larger windows. That's better. And, and just more light. And going vertical with the windows brings light more deeply into a building. That's a really important architectural concept there. That's why old schoolhouses, at least in New England, you think about an old, you know, um, one-room schoolhouse, they have those tall, really tall windows. And in old industrial uh, factories, you know, those super tall windows, they bring light very deeply into a space. And that's, you know, really great for, for a living environment. So going really vertical with windows is key. Um, we could have done that a little better in places. I think probably we'll see, but our, we framed our greenhouse in wood. So I, I hired a, a small um, company, two guys, to help me do the greenhouse, and I was really busy at the time, so I figured it would help get it done if I, helped, if I hired part of it out. And this guy has a kit that's really neat, but it's wood framing. I think in this climate or even in drier climates, but especially here, it's just a it's just a rotting facility to have a greenhouse that's, um, you know, any type of greenhouse is a rotting facility. So we, we've done some tweaks to it to make sure the wood stays dry, but I think framing a greenhouse is a great opportunity for actually welding something up or using metal. Um, you know, that might be, might be a mistake. We'll see over time. Um, we avoided a major mistake, which is a huge... Uh, I think hugely misunderstood is the idea of putting a greenhouse on the south side of a house. We should definitely talk about that for a second because it's this one of the great ideas, you know, great ideas, capital G, capital I, in the literature out there. And it sounds great. It's like, you know, it's like putting chickens under fruit trees or something. It makes great sense theoretically. But in this climate, you are blowing super humidified, hyper humidified air into warm air into a space to heat it at best if you're if you have a greenhouse attached to a building and then you have to get rid of all that humidity because you don't want a home to be 90 95 percent humidity like a greenhouse is if you're growing plants it needs to be really humid you have moist soil so i think i haven't seen a, a greenhouse attached to a conditioned heated building in this climate where you don't end up with major rot problems and we at one point were considering attaching our greenhouse to a living environment here, to, to a home, and we'd actually attach it to a barn instead, and I'm really glad we did, because even in the barn, if we let a lot of that heat in the, in the shop, which is on the top of the barn, all my tools start to want to rust out. So actually, I don't even use that heat for the most part. I dump it outside, which seems like a, you know, a real waste of heat, but you just can't deal with 95 degree 80, you know, 90 degree air that's 95% humidity in a building in, in the cold, very cold winter, that's going to condense on every cold surface and you're going to, it's going to rain in your building, which is not a good thing. So that's a really common, um, commonly made mistake, I think, in, in the cold climate. If you're out, Colorado, Wyoming, you might be able to get away with it. You still might need a dehumidifier. It's, it's, I think it's just a, it's a challenging concept. I think there are examples of that working well, but I've, I've looked and I haven't found any in a, in a cold human climate that seem to really function well for the long haul. 
Well, that makes that so makes sense. Questions. Go ahead. Yeah, those are just a few of them. I mean, I could, you know, talk about kind of sub-optimizations here and there for for a while, but those are some of the bigger ones, I think. Um, you know, one thing I mentioned is something we really got right here, and it's a fundamental thing, I think, to get right, because everything is based around it, is taking advantage of passive solar in the landscape. That's even more important. I want to mention this earlier when we talking about passive solar in a home. What you can do in a passive, from a passive solar perspective in a cold, humid climate is only so, um, so great in terms of affecting the interior of a building in, in this climate. You can do a bit, but not that much. But what you can do to affect the exterior, to affect the landscape outside a building, is a really big deal. So um, citing, a, citing homes so that you enhance the south-facing space and creating really great sun traps and just doing all the stuff that, that people have written about and talk about in terms of creating warm microclimates with your built infrastructure is really, you, that, that gets you very far and creates beautiful outdoor living spaces and super productive plant spaces where you can extend your season by weeks on, on both sides of the season, you know, and raise beds in zone one and things like that south of a south of a building. So that's key. And not putting your cars on the south side of your house, essentially, <laughs> using that high-value space. The relationship between access and buildings and, and north and south is, is, is very fundamental. It's like kind of like organizing in a key line, in a key line design, organizing around, you know, landform and water first in terms of developing a human habitat, organizing around access and where the sun is and where your cars are going to be and how you come in and out of the building. That's, those, that's a fundamental structure around which everything else ends up um, taking shape. Very, very cool. So it has it, been a great interview on, on cold climates, but I'd like to finish up maybe with a little bit more on permaculture in general. We were talking offline before we got started with the interview, and I, I'd like to let you share some of the results that you're seeing because I keep telling people that things are changing all around us in, in, in movement toward liberty and with permaculture as being part of that and that the, the interest has is shifted to a much higher level. Like I, was, I had Jeff on Lawton on last week, and he was talking about how when when he took his first PDC, I think in '83, he just thought, well, we'll just be doing all of this in in, in five years. That he thought it would be general, you know, governmental policy across the world by 1991. I think as we said, and it it did really happen. And a lot of people that have been in permaculture a long time have kind of felt like, well, why aren't people getting it? And what I've been saying the last couple of years, like. They're getting it. So just some of the results you've seen about things like running your apprenticeship program and all. Can you talk about how that is going and how you, you personally think it would have been different if you had done it, say, five years ago? Yeah, I think that's um, something we've seen a lot lately. I mean, even in the beginning, for me, I mean, I started getting into permaculture like about under the under the term permaculture, let's say about 15 years ago in college. Um and then, you know, moved here 11 years ago. And I think even early on, that's about when, a little before that is when I started whole systems design. Um, that was still a little before the, you know, the curve of the steep rise in interest that we've seen really, I think, just in the last five years. And then even especially in the last one, two, three years. I mean, it seems like every four months in the last year, things are just doubling in terms of interest. Um, I mean, we've, 
gotten really busy or business with design projects. Um, you know, it, it always kind of comes in waves and is up and down over the years, but in general, we've been getting busy, especially more lately. Um, our apprenticeship program was we've been inundated with with interest, and we've been sending them on to other to other far, far farms for the last um, month now. Um, so there's you know huge wave of interest among people in their twenties and thirties, career change people, and also people getting into stuff. You know, wanting to be on projects. So there's a huge amount of um, resources of people resources to tap into there, and you know offer offer a learning opportunity in exchange for having some help on a project. Um, I don't know. I think it seems like uh, things are starting to get a little more into the mainstream, like what, with what Diego's doing with the Permaculture Voices Conference. That's a really big splash, I think, and, you know, how Jeff's work is getting out there and like Darren Doherty and what Mark Shepard's doing. It seems like, seems to me in the last, just in the last year or two, there's a lot of new sites starting to come online and a lot of sites that have existed for a while, the world is starting to hear about. And I remember when the video that, that um, came out about Stefan's site, uh, Miracle Farms in Quebec, which is like two or three hours from here, I couldn't believe, I was stunned this guy's been doing this for, I think, 10 or 20 years, you know, just a few hours away. It's like super incredibly productive, well-set-up, established permaculture orchard. And, you know, I think with maybe with the way media is and the way the Internet is, a lot of what has been going on is starting to finally find an outlet. And I think people that got into it, too, in the last five to ten years are starting to finally get land and get projects. And that's what we've always been limited by, I think, at least for the first bunch of years I was into it. It's just sites and projects. There's a lot of talk. There, You know, there's not, there's still not enough actual little, literal farms and homesteads. But that now, I think that's really changing. I think probably in five years, it'll be, you know, dozens upon dozens of places that you can get your PDC that are, like, really awesome sites. And right now, and for the last five years, it just hasn't been that way. No, I mean, one of the things that really struck me when I was at your facility a couple of years ago is what a great place it was to be while having that experience of, of learning permaculture. And I don't care whether it's a PDC or an earthworks workshop, or a design intensive, or um, e- you know, even if you were doing something like a, a primitive tools or a grafting seminar, it just having places like that to be in when you're learning these things reinforces why you're learning them. That this is the end result, and I think that we've needed people like yourself to create sites that people can actually see the results in, so that they could believe it. Because the old saying, "seeing is believing," I think is is really true. Especially when you're telling somebody something like, well, it doesn't have to be the way that it is now. Because then the response is, well, then why is it this way now? Like, we've been led to believe that things have to be straight lines and rows and what have you. And that it can't be beautiful if it's also chaos. And when you see beautiful chaos, then you say, oh, well, that's what a forest looks like. And that was beautiful all along. But for some reason, the human mind needs to see it done productively to comprehend what can be done. And then they say, then they say, I want that for myself. And that's, that's where I think we're getting to, where people are starting to not just like be open to the fact that it's possible, but they want it in their own backyard. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, I think the wave is starting to, to come in and, and, you know, land on the beach now. And we're, we're starting to, uh, the, the results are starting to become clear. It's really, really exciting. 
So even though you're on the show all the time on the Expert Council, Ben, and uh, you get to say where you're from, say it again here for people that maybe are listening for the first time. They want to learn more about you, uh, if they're in your area or willing to travel there for a, a class or something, how they can uh, how they can work with you. Uh, and the cool work you're doing, because there's so much more. I mean, cold climate, rice, uh, all kinds of awesome things you're doing. Where can they learn more about that? Sure, yeah. So the best thing is to probably go to, if you're on Facebook, go to our Facebook page because it's pretty updated, Whole Systems Design. You can check out our, our website, too, wholesystemsdesign.com. If you Google my name, Ben Falk, you'll, you'll probably come up with both of those, too, eventually. Um our, we actually our first two permaculture courses just filled completely, so we're announcing we just announced yesterday a third one, and people are starting to sign up for that. So we'll have three going this summer. Uh, we got a 14-year-old signed up for that one. That's the third one already, which is really neat to have someone that young taking a PDC. Um, and then we've got a lot of short courses as well. Uh, one of them that just is starting to get a lot of um, sign-ups is called the uh, Homestead Security Failure Proofing the Basics. We got some people coming up for that. That's in late May, so check that on our website. You'll have to dig around a little bit, but um, if you're interested in that course, check it out pretty soon. It's a, I think it's a one-day, uh, three-quarter day intensive on, um, on homestead security and resiliency uh, at large on the home scale. And uh, our book, The Resilient Farm Homestead, is a really great resource as well as you mentioned. And yeah, um, definitely be in touch. Awesome, awesome. Well, real quick, because you mentioned the thing about a 14-year-old. Here's a question I'm getting more and more. I've got parents with young children who are very interested in permaculture. They want to learn more, but one parent, the other, or both are still saying, I want this kid to go to college. And the kid's saying, well, I want to do something with this. And, you know, my response has always been, stay the hell away from agricultural degrees at big universities if you want permaculture, because it ain't what you're going to get. And I've advised things like engineering and organic chemistry as potential things that might translate over. Um, do you have a landscaping background? Are there other things you can think of from, like, the person that's going to want a higher education and wants it to be uh, something that will be applicable in permaculture? What are some things they might might study? Well, I think there's an opportunity there to get some real specialized experience because what the permaculture world and a lot of permacultures do lack for is um, people that, that have a specific expertise that are really good with soils or really good with plant propagation or really good with, you know, built infrastructure or moving electrons around or whatever it is that have a real solid expertise. And so that's where I think a lot of these you know, higher ed programs could, could lend some value. I think as far as getting a whole systems perspective, a systems understanding and a systems thinking and doing, um, frame of, of mind um, and that embodied in us, that's, that can't be beat, um, can, you know, in, in any other world, I think, other than, you know, the permaculture world is, is a great approach for that, you know. Um, but as far as getting specialized information, programs in horticulture, there's some really strong training programs out there in horticulture at university levels. Um, for sure, a lot of the agronomy and agriculture is definitely in the dark ages of, of chemical and and, um, you know, non-biological worlds of, of agriculture in most universities. But that's starting to change. There's definitely been a landmark program for a while out in relating to organic farming in, um, I think, at UC Santa Cruz. I think UC Davis has some programs along the ag front that are pretty forward-thinking. I think 
some people are taking independent studies to a new level at, at colleges and going in and either at the grad level or undergrad level and saying, I'm going to focus on agroforestry or um, do something specific that has a permaculture bent to it, but utilize and harness the resources you know, that exist in the university, like major research facilities and, you know, a lot of um, grant, you know, funding opportunities as well. So I think for, for people that are academically minded, there's a lot of leverage there, but you got to know in, you got to go in to those institutions knowing what you want to do and kind of have... It's almost like you're saying design your degree with the end in mind. Yeah, exactly. Because you just go in to these programs. I mean, I know people from the permaculture world who've done that, and if they can't adjust those programs much, they're out. They're like, forget this. I'm just learning how to spray an orchard down, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. The reason I've always said engineering is that, especially something like civil engineering, where you're learning about roads and uh, public works projects like dams and stuff like that, a person with that level of capability, coupled with a solid understanding of permaculture earthworks, could do really great things on large-scale properties. Not to mention that since they had the engineering background, they could become a licensed professional engineer. And a lot of these projects, you know, you end up spending a lot of money as a permaculturist because, well, when I want to do this, now I need a PE. And if you had a a permaculture business where you were a PE or you had a PE in your business, that's a huge cost savings. And when the man shows up and demands it, well, he's, he's right here. He's been right. here all along. Now, please go away and let us get back to, to saving the earth. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. We've been amazed just in our business, Cornelius and I, whole system design. When we, we propose stuff on the water, we propose solutions on how to manage water, and sometimes like municipal projects. We're working on one now for a city, and we'll propose an idea of, of slowing, spreading, sinking water and having retention and swales that we think are going to be, you know, just received wildly and be like, oh, that's, that's, that sounds crazy. And incredible how little pushback we've been getting from some, some of these possible solutions, uh, even from, you know, from the client end. People want to see this stuff, and it makes sense to them if it's explained well. Yeah. They need it backed up, like you say, by people with PEs and people with all the right letters behind their names. <laughs> And, I mean, the other thing I can think of is, like, you talked about propagation and plants and stuff like that. So there's so much work that needs to be done with cataloging species and varieties and, you know, finding the best varieties for an area. Like, botany seems like a, a good uh, pathway. I think there's, there's like, there's pathways yeah. there, but you got the people have to get off of the, I want to be in permaculture, so I'm going to go into an agricultural type of thing versus right. going to, I'm going to pick my specialty in permaculture and I'm going to get a degree that complements that specialty. So I'm going to take the degree for the specialist knowledge, and I'm going to go to permaculture education facilities for the generalist knowledge, and then I'm going to put those two together. And I think that's – I don't care if it's permaculture or whatever. I think that's what's largely lacking in American business and American society today is that we have specialists and generalists, and we have very few generalists with a specialty. And I think right. that, that is the strength of if you want to build something for yourself that's really powerful is have that general, you know, generalist Benjamin Franklin type of thinking, you know, a jack of all trades and a master of none, and then become the jack of all trades with a master of one, right? And that right. that is where you can, you know, really hammer down in that one area. And if you think about it, like everybody that's really, really known in the permaculture world has a specialty. 
I'd say Lawton's really is Earthworks and Food Forest. That's that's it. But if we look at somebody like Savory, it's it's grazing, and he he doesn't even think he's in permaculture. But I told him <laughs> whether he wants to admit it or not, that's what you are. Right. You're following the ethics and the directive. You're a permaculturist, uh, or Elaine Ingram is a soils person, or what have you. Most people that really are known for making uh, an impact have that that defined place that they're best known for. And I think that's true in anything. Like race car drivers are known as a corners guy or a athletes known as a ball handler or what have you. So we need, even though you have the generalist knowledge on how to play the game, that specialized knowledge on how to be exceptional at one thing. So that, because we're, I, get, I think you'd agree with this. There's so much work that needs to be done that once you understand permaculture, you're like, who the hell's going to do – because you, you're like, well, we need this and we need that, and I can do this one thing, but who's going to do all this? Right. There's not going to fund it in universities or anything, not anytime soon. There's not going to be a government permaculture institute, which, God bless, I don't think there should be, right? But that means that all of us need to pick, you know, with, with seed lines, one plant you're going to work with and develop that one strain. And we need people doing little things everywhere. But we also need some people that are leaders that step up and be those pioneers out into these big areas like, you know, Earthworks. I was talking to Jeff about they have these new, um, these new basically are great alls that, like, Counties used to put bar ditches, and you just drive and it makes a ditch. But now they have GPS in them, and you can put USGI contour information in the GPS, and this damn thing will just drive and make a swale. And right. he was like, we could move so fast on a broad scale if we'd use that technology. But the reality is we need to be using it in little places everywhere right now because that those days are not here yet. We have to prove this works before the rest of everybody will believe it works and, and get on board with it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But as soon as as soon as that happens, yeah, the ability. There's no reason that this this has to take a long time, you know, from a global perspective. Well, cool, man. I appreciate you being with us today, Ben. And again, your website is WholeSystemsDesign.com. Uh, people can learn more there. You're in every set of show notes anyway as a council member, but I'll make sure there's a second link. I'll make sure there's a link to your Facebook page as well so people can connect with you. And thank you for the work you're doing for permaculture. Thank you for the fact that you are one of the few people in permaculture that really talks about things like preparedness and security in addition to just what's typical in permaculture. And uh, thank you for serving our audience so well as a council member. Yeah, well, thanks, Jack. It's my pleasure. I appreciate everything you're doing. It's been a, it's been a huge learning opportunity for myself and, and you know, tens of thousands of people so thank you cool man well with that folks this has been Jack Spirico today along with Ben Falk helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way